Well, hi, Bridgeway family. It is so good to be with you. We are gonna get into God's word and once again, be blown away with what he has for us. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to go ahead and grab that or maybe just fire up a Bible app on your phone or whether or not you have a laptop nearby. Uh, But I have a lot for you. We are in part 15 of our Connecting to Church series through the book of Ephesians and I entitled today's message, counterfeit gods. And I want to talk about sin. Now, obviously, you're like, yay, let's talk about sin. But I want to talk about it from a slightly different perspective. And that is going to lead us into the fill in the blank. If you have the app, the Bridgeway app open and you're taking notes, you might want to be able to fill this out along with me. But I have a couple thoughts that will lead us to that. Here we go. I don't believe that sin should be as difficult for us as it is. And the reason for that is because I believe that God, the Bible says, gives us everything we need for life and godliness. We should be so filled up, we should be so full that we can't possibly want more. Now, in the passage we're about to study, you're gonna hear a word used twice, and it's covetousness comes from the concept of coveting something. And so I wanna talk about defining that real quick right now. It means greediness. And I love this definition. The longing to fill God voids with lower objects of nature. So it's never filled up, always craving. Let me say that again. Covetousness is the longing to fill God voids with lower objects of nature, which unfortunately leaves it never filled up, always craving. There is a Christian concept that we need to bake into our spirits, and it is this. The way to get sin out is to replace it with good stuff. Simple removal leaves a void, and voids always pour back in. They pull things back into themselves. And if you thought what was unhealthy before, it might be even more unhealthy when it pulls it back in. So let me give you that fill in the blank, and then I'm going to keep talking about this for a second. Let me give the fill in the blank if you're if you're using that, a full heart craves less. A full heart craves less. I truly believe that the enemy should have a much harder time getting us to do his business. I feel like sin should be way harder for the Christian if we are truly filled up with what God says he gives us. It talks about him giving us extraordinary Love. It talks about lavishing grace upon us. It talks about a full washing of forgiveness. It talks about an unending joy. It talks about Jesus who dwells with us as the Prince of Peace. If we had all those things in mass, then our joy level would be high, our laughter would be light, our lives would be full and complete, and we would not be craving so much. And so when temptation comes, it really isn't that interesting to us. It is my suggestion that the church, and I'm talking about the church at large, It is my suggestion that the church needs to talk a lot more about what we should fill our lives with instead of all the things that we need to remove. 
Now, I get it. We're in a portion of Ephesians where Paul's talking about getting stuff out and putting new stuff in. I just don't want you to miss the area of getting stuff in. Because too often, and I've grown up around the church, too often the constant dialogue is get rid of this, get rid of that, don't do this, don't do that. And when you keep stripping things away, it doesn't leave anything. We need to be more about what we are for than what we are against. We need to explain what is good more than focusing on what is bad. We give way too much press to evil and not nearly enough to righteousness. And the unfortunate reality is that now we have a bunch of anemic Christians walking around this world trying to throw away another thing, malnourished and just ripe for getting picked off by the enemy. You know, I want to highlight something for you. Jesus went into the desert, into the desert temptation to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, it says, he went in and he fasted. And we think about the idea that Satan came to him in a temptation and said, well, you're super hungry now. You're lacking now. Here's what I need you to understand. Jesus walked into the desert temptation full. It took him 40 days of having nothing to pull at him and begin to deplete him. Some of us can get picked off by the enemy after one day because we are so malnourished spiritually, we are so underfilled that it just takes one bad day and we make the worst decisions. Jesus went in full and here's what I think. I think that temptation couldn't shut him down because he already had what was more important. No one is tempted by the lesser. We are only tempted once Satan can convince us that what he's got is better than what God's got. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3? We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 through 5 today. And uh, this is where Paul is continuing on talking about how to live a new life, how to let go of the old and replace it with the new. So he's been talking about different behaviors and habits and things like that that we need to change. So he's going to continue on in that same vein. We're going to pick it up in verse 3, read through 5, and then I'll go back and tear it apart. So here we go. This is what it sounds like. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow, boy, that sounds like a joyful one for us, yeah? But I'm telling you, listen for a moment. Now, I do have to share this, that we are in an unusual season where all of our sermons, messages, times together are family-oriented. And what that's going to do is to create an oddity for today because whether or not it is one of our live services or whether or not you're watching us live online, usually we have the kiddos around, right? And I'm going to be talking about some pretty 
serious stuff, right? We're going to be talking about sexuality and immorality and pieces like that. So because it's a family service, I don't exactly want to create a million opportunities for you to have conversations with your kids about super awkward stuff. I think you should be in charge of when to do that. So in one sense, I'm giving a little bit of a warning, but in another sense, let me just share this. Because in order to do justice to the material means that we would get very adult. Pastor Brian and myself are going to have a special episode of the after party with Pastor Lance. The after party with Pastor Lance, we are going to have on August 30th, that is Sunday night. So on Sunday night from 8.30 to 9.30, we are going to go live and talk with you. And I'm going to share all the material that I was not able to actually share in this message. If you think, wow, he kind of skipped pretty lightly over that. Uh, We're going to hit all the rest of it. So I really encourage you to come join us. And once again, if you missed it, you can always go back and listen to it as well. But we would sure love to have you there with us live. So in honor of the family structure... I'm going to try to take things a little bit more lightly and kind of tiptoe and navigate this crazy stuff, all right? So, you've been warned, right? I'm doing my best. All right, let's tear into it and get very specific. We pick it up in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. All right, he just dropped a bunch of words there. Let's define our words, that way we can figure it out. So what is sexual immorality? That is the word porneia in Greek, and what it means is it's a super broad term, and it basically means anything sexual outside of God's intentions. So it's pretty much the catch-all phrase for anything and everything that would be outside of God's design. Then he uses the word impurity. That actually means anything other than absolute pure righteousness. If it's outside the nature of God, it would be considered impure. Does that make sense? All right. And then the third word that I highlighted at our intro was covetousness. Covetousness means greediness to selfishly consume. Greediness to selfishly consume, and this is really, really important. Now, you've heard this phrase, covet, and you probably heard it because it was involved in the Ten Commandments. So let me read a couple of these just to refresh your mind, unless you have the Ten Commandments, basically uh, what's staked over your bed or staked up in the, uh, the kitchen there. Let me remind you. Exodus 20, 17, after a couple of them, he hits these, and these are the commandments that have to do with how to treat one another. Right? There's some that how to treat God, and then there's some commandments that are how to treat each other. All right. Beginning in verse 17 of Exodus chapter 20, it says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, here's why I'm highlighting this out for a moment, because in the passage we're about to read, it says there should not be any sexual immorality or covetousness. And we're like, oh, so it's talking about coveting a neighbor's wife. It must have a sexual reference. As a matter of fact, in that context, it actually does not. 
here's what I mean. It's focused more on selfish craving than anything sexual. Once again, let's go over the list that was mentioned there in Exodus 20, 17. Don't covet what? Things like servants, donkeys, oxen, or anything. In other words, it's not primarily sexual. It's saying that I want what you have so you don't have it anymore and I'm better for it. I'm craving what you have and I selfishly want it. That's a very, very important context for us to read into Ephesians, right? And here's what Paul says. The stuff we just talked about, all the impurity and all that, it should not be a part of the church's reputation. Why? Because it demeans the name and glory of God, and it doesn't align with who we are in our Christian identity. It's not what we're supposed to be known for, right? I don't think that's a huge stretch, yeah? I mean, think about it this way. What is proper for the church? If you know a church across town and you know one of your neighbors goes to that church, but everyone in the neighborhood knows that guy is cheating on his wife, is that really making the church look good and making God look good? Clearly it is not. I don't think that's too hard. That's not rocket science. As a matter of fact, Paul takes it one step further, and this is where it gets personal for us. He said, we need to be in accordance for what is proper as saints. I know that you and I probably don't consider ourselves saints, but if Jesus Christ has done his work in you, that's exactly what you are. The word saints comes from hagios in Greek, which means holy. In other words, we are holy, we are set apart, we are sanctified, we are consecrated, we are purified, and we are devoted to our deity. So in other words, saints are those who are God's property, God's people. We are his body and those who carry out his will here on earth just like he would. And if that is who we are, then everything that we do ought to align with his nature because we're his continuing. So it would not be appropriate for Jesus to harm other people because he didn't do that. So uh, what I love so much about scripture is that it's so realistic and it's so practical. It's saying, listen, we shouldn't be doing that. It's just not who we are. And it's not what he did. It doesn't even make sense. You can't have this and this. That doesn't work together. There's a really, really insightful passage that I would like you to keep your finger there in Ephesians, but I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. 1 Thessalonians 4. So in other words, you gotta go to the right in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. This will give us an indicator about how Paul wants to talk about these issues. Very, very important. You there? All right, you're probably still gonna be searching. All right, if you don't wanna, don't wanna take too long, you can just listen to me, all right? Here we go, I'm gonna read it for you. Reading out of the ESV. 1 Thessalonians 4, one through seven. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this 
is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you would know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Let me repeat verse six, because this is the key. Why should we not do those things? Here's the context. So that no one would transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Why is this so insightful? What is Paul really concerned about when he talks about the issue of sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness? It's that it hurts other people. Remember, the context of this book in Ephesians is how ought we to live together? It is not primarily an individualistic book where we think about what should we be doing at home when we're all by ourselves. This is talking about community. And one of the things is when we allow our desires to go sideways, it ends up impacting the people around us. Let me keep making my argument here. Now, the context of this whole passage is actual, live sexual immorality. And you're like, what, what, what is your point? Because if we're talking about engaging with other people, that's how it involves community. In a little while, I'm gonna talk about thought life and I'm gonna talk about some other issues that maybe are a little bit more personal. This is communal. So in other words, at the heart of God's concerns about sexual immorality is a treatment of people and how it dishonors his name. So harm to one another is a major issue. I wanna talk about sex for a moment and I get it. I told you I was gonna to try to walk gently, so I will. Sex is dangerous. It's wonderful, it's just dangerous, it's mysterious. We still to this day do not know what goes on between two individuals that are engaged in that way. It's way too deep for us. When I say that it's dangerous, I'm talking about like a firearm. That a gun was designed and there is a very helpful element of it but it's dangerous. If it's used properly, it's great. If it is used improperly, it's devastating. I think we've all learned that. Sex is the same way. If it's used properly, it's glorious. If it's used improperly, there's damage. That's what I'm trying to say. But the problem is never enjoyment. Let me explain this. One of the biggest lies that the enemy has promoted in humanity is that God is holding out on us. It's what he used in the Garden of Eden to take Eve and Adam down, and it's what he uses today. See, there's this idea that God doesn't want us to have fulfillment, joy, fun, laughter, sex, any of that stuff. That is absolutely not true. As a matter of fact, sexuality is encouraged in Scripture. The problem is that damage can result from using it improperly, so there's warning labels. How in the world does it lead to harming one another? See, this is always the pushback that I'll get as a pastor when I encourage people to live differently. 
I'm not hurting anybody, we're consensual adults, uh, blah, 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 blah. Well, I care about that person and okay. Here's the problem, regret. Now, I'm not gonna have you do this because this would be so awkward. But So we're just going to all raise our hands in our minds. Let me be real clear on that. Please don't raise your hand right now. This would be super weird. But how many of us that were ever involved sexually, actively, outside of our marriage have regret about those encounters? I'm going to suggest to you it's every single one. Why? Because it did not build upon the relationship that you are in currently. It took away from So there is a regret there. And people say, well, no, 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 there's not that much regret. Okay, hold on. Here's a couple things. There is harm like giving away your purity to someone else. It's the reality of knowing that you are merely one of many. It's the distortion of sexuality because it wasn't like that in marriage. There's a misappropriation of dreams and efforts towards our future. There is times when boundaries were pushed or territory was moved into that was inappropriate. All of those create regret. And regret is any time we step outside of the lines of God. Remember, just because two people agree to be mutually unhealthy doesn't make it right. Here's the other problem with it. There is fusing and unfusing. Without getting too graphic, I will simply say this. God says that in marriage, he locks something down, and our part is fusing together physically. That creates a supernatural bond, whether you like it or not. So there is a fusing with one partner, and then if you have another partner, there's an unfusing and a refusing that causes chaos in our spirits. And here's the other problem, and, I, and I'm not trying to be flippant, I actually mean this, but if you have ever been involved sexually outside of your spouse, it was with someone else's spouse. You said, no, they weren't married, not at the time, but they ended up getting married. Statistically, it was adultery. Now, here's my point. Your engagement with that person ended up impacting the other marriage down the road and yours. So all I'm trying to make the point of saying is that when it is used improperly, it can cause harm or hurt. That's at the heart of what Paul's trying to get to. Let me keep talking about this. There's one other element that is super both creepy and really important. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6.13? 1 Corinthians 6.13. And yes... I am going light, as a side note. Let's read this passage together, 1 Corinthians 6. I'd much rather have the Bible be creepy than me be creepy, so let me just read it, as opposed to paraphrasing it. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for we were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. In other words, I think it made it very, very clear, whatever you've been engaged with, if you're a Christian, you got Jesus involved in too. That's what I'll leave it at. But I told you there was two big problems with sexual immorality. One of them was harm to other people, but the actual more important one is dishonor to God's name. Let me share what I mean by this. Disobedience to the king demonstrates to all watching, whether they're people or angelic or demonic beings, it demonstrates to all people that he's not really the authority in your life because what type of king would allow disobedience? So it is a smear on his name. Additionally, human beings are designed to reveal the nature of God. And when we violate his designs, when we distort the view of God in the world, it tarnishes his reputation. Here's what I mean. A marriage is supposed to be a demonstration of the nature of God. That is why, and I'll suggest to you the primary reason why damage to a marriage or a home or sexual impropriety or distortions of the traditional family, why they're so damaging. Because when a man comes together with a woman, it's God's feminine and masculine pieces coming together, and then he is more well represented. When we start having divorce and tumultuous stuff and single parent homes and everything, it starts to create a dissonance of people trying to find out what God's like. They should be able to know the nature of God by looking at a Christian household. So once again, one of the primary challenges of any type of sexual stuff outside of the normal that God called for, and I'm talking about whether it's alternative lifestyles or whatever it is, one of the biggest problems is it doesn't reflect the nature of God appropriately. We always talk about, well, it's what I want and it's what the other person wants and we're all in agreement and, and we're not hurting anybody. Hold on, I'm not saying that you are. What I'm saying is it doesn't represent the nature of God. The argument back is, well, all kinds of relationships don't represent God well. And you're absolutely correct. It's why we have to watch what we do and watch how we behave. Just to make things a little bit more uncomfortable, let's talk for a moment about pornography. So I'm not going to get into it too much because once again, this is a family uh, service, so uh, I'm not trying to create a whole lot of discussions in your house. However, I will say this. Anytime we're gonna be talking about sexual immorality in the church today, there is a modern phenomenon that has taken over the world that is a different form of pornography than historically, just made it a lot more accessible. Let me just explain why it's a big deal because I don't wanna skirt around it, but I will go into much more detail when we get into more of an adult scenario talking about that at the after party on Sunday night, all right? We'll go into that more, but let me just highlight across the surface so we all understand what a huge deal it is. Do you realize that pornography is a $13 billion industry total. Online, just online alone, in America, 
every year is $2.84 billion spent. In the worldwide on the internet is $4.9 billion, excuse me, every year. What that means is $3,000 is spent on pornography every second online. Every second online. It's a massive industry. Let me tell you how big it is. 35% of all downloads from the total internet are pornography. Technically, porn makes up 30% of all engaged internet totals. For total sites on the entire internet, it's 12% or 24,644,172 sites. USA created 89% of those. So if you're in the US, welcome to the capital of it, right? Porn sites get more visitors per month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. You wanna talk about power? Let me just give you one last set of statistics just to give you the idea. According to statistics, 70% of men between the ages of 18 to 24 visit porn sites regularly, yet they're not the largest consumer. The largest consumer of online porn is men between 35 and 49. Per the University of Oklahoma, 33% of women engage in porn videos or explicit photos, and they represent one-third of all porn activity is women users. If you want to know the stats on the church, they're the same. Now, the reason why I'm addressing this is because these crossover lines, remember I told you that the idea of sexual immorality was really a huge broad term that encompassed a lot of things. Well, it encompasses this. So let me just real briefly explain some of the challenges that can come out of pornography use. Number one, and probably the one that everybody wants to talk about, is lust and consumption. Lust and consumption. In other words, the person that's engaging with it, what happens to them? Well, most people would say they are lusting and that they're trying to consume what they have. So there seems to be a problem there. But here's what's interesting about the concept of lust. A lot of people think it means sexual arousal. It does not. It actually means consumption harm to the other person. Why is that important? Because here's what everyone wants to cite. It is Jesus's words himself. In Matthew 5, 27, he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why that's important is notice what sin he links it to. He doesn't link it to fornication. He links it to adultery. Why is that important? Because it involves someone else's spouse. You go, I'm not following you. Once again, the context is stop hurting other people. Well, I'm not hurting anybody else. You actually are. Here's a couple other challenges. There's four primary problems that erupt with pornography use. The first one I told you was lust and consumption. That's a personal issue. The second one is a temptation to go live. That is actually how a lot of the internet is designed for dollars. So going live, I think we all understand what that means, being involved with another human being. Number three, mistreatment of women. 
that is not always the case, but it certainly can be the case, and sometimes to a very extreme degree. And then number four, this is the one that I tend to get more concerned about, and that is what I call the sin millstone, that I have a bunch of men and women that I know that will not minister, will not pray, will not go deeper in their spiritual lives because of the guilt and shame that they carry because of what they do in their private lives. So there's a huge amount of Christians that are sidelined and they don't feel confident operating with God. If those things are a challenge for you, I wanna encourage you on this. Bridgeway has engaged over the years with some pretty amazing ministries that allow people to have some freedom in these areas. One of them is called Pure Desire or the Conquer series. Whether you're male or female, we do have resources to help you out. If that's something that you wanna have some freedom in and you wanna find a new way of thinking and you want Jesus to come in and bring refreshment, we have people that understand where you're at. They are not interested in judging you. They are interested in setting you free. So if you're interested in that, make sure to get in contact with our leadership here at the church and we'll get you some resources. All right, let's finish out the passage. Let's dive back into verse four. Paul continues on explaining about what things we should replace. He said this, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. That's an interesting thing. So what do those words mean? What's filthiness? It means this, Christians shouldn't be polluting other people's minds with stuff that's not healthy and that's ungodly. I think that's pretty clear. The second piece, he said, don't let foolish talk come out. This is what's funny, and it's not funny, but it is funny because I'm immature. The word in Greek that is used for foolish talk is the word moron, which cracks me up. Don't be a moron. That's really what the Bible just said. Here's what it means. It means that you are bringing nothing to the table. You're just talking about nothingness and stupidness. When a Christian is known for that, no one trusts their testimony anymore, and they can no longer share the gospel. Here's the third one. He said, don't use crude humor. Here's what he meant. Don't use humor in a demeaning or a harming way. We've talked about that in this series. That stuff is out of place because Christians are salt and light and we are blessings, not harm. So what should we do instead? Thanksgiving. What a weird word to put on the other side. What do you mean Instead, let's have thanksgiving. Why can't we just promote the name of God and say Jesus Christ did everything and we're just learning the glory of what he accomplished for us? How about we encourage one another with, did you know Jesus did this for you and he did this for you and he did this for me? We should be a walking testimony of the glory of God building everyone around us up, amen? Amen. Let's finish it out. Here's where the seriousness comes in. The warning in verse five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. All right, this is one of a number of passages that give you a list of sins and say people who do this stuff will not enter the kingdom of God. Makes you super nervous because every one of those lists has something that's going on in your life right now. If you ever just wanna just be a little nervous before you go to bed, just go ahead and read a bunch of those passages and you're like, man, I knew it. Okay, I wanna talk about habits and identities. When the Bible talks about someone being something, so for example, if we're gonna take this one, 
Someone who is sexually immoral, someone who is impure, someone who is covetous, someone who is an idolater. When the Bible talks about how someone is something, it's talking about identity and pattern of behavior. Let me give you an example. King David was called a warrior. Does that mean that he only fought one fight? No, a warrior fights many battles. It was part of who he was. It was about his internal mindset that led to outward actions. It says that he was a poet. Did he only write one poem? No, he was a poet because he continually wrote poems. He had the heart of a poet. It says that he was a man after God's own heart. That means that as a part of his identity and how he habitually operated was seeking after the things of God. But did he always do those things? No, he was not a man after God's own heart in the Bathsheba incident. In other words, no, we are not perfect in our identities, but Jesus is making us more and more renewed every day. What are we known for? What rules our life? This passage is not to create insecurity because here's the reality. If you are truly a Christian, Jesus Christ died for your sins and God doesn't double bill. The Bible says that he remembers our sins no more. It says that they're as far as the east is from the west. That's how far he's removed our transgressions. So what is Paul talking about? Here's what it means. It's one of two things. Either it means if you operate as this is part of who you are, meaning that everyone knows you as someone that is contrary to Jesus, that your actions are not like Jesus at all, then it means one of two things. Number one, it means God can't use you as a Christian right now. Why? You're still saved, but you've been rendered inoperable by the enemy because no one's going to let you talk out of two sides of your mouth. You can't hurt people and try to bless people at the same time. Or it means the second one. Christ isn't in your life like you think he is because if you're completely content harming other people, while having the indwelling Holy Spirit and there's no friction there, you might be living a fiction. So we're left with the result. If our lives do not reflect the impact or presence of God, maybe we're not as connected to Him as we think we are. Maybe we're not headed towards being with Him at all. You see, Paul does these periodic check-in points, and he says, the Lord is in your life, right? Like, you're seeing evidence of that, right? No, of course you're going to sin. Of course you're going to have problems. Of course you're going to mess up. Of course you're going to be a jerk. Of course you're going to have rebellion. What I'm saying is, is there agitation about that stuff? Is God renewing it, or does it not matter? Hmm. The bottom line of all of this is an analysis of our lifestyles, our actions, our behaviors, and our mindsets. Is there evidence that God dwells with us? If we are Christians, then why is there so much 
hurting other people still happening? Where is that garbage coming from? And how do we replace it with love and blessing and encouragement and compassion? Where is the fruit of the Spirit pushing out the selfish harm? You see, we need to focus so much on getting more of the love of God in our lives so that the other stuff isn't even tempting. I just want to pray over us as we close out just a washing of our minds, a transforming of our hearts, letting God do that deep work so that we are healthy inside and that we are able to be a blessing to those outside. You ready to pray? I just want to pray with you. Here we go. Heavenly Father, we are broken individuals, and you have done so much to sanctify us and make us right. Sometimes we're not taking advantage of that. Other times, Lord, we are so tricked by the enemy or we're so lost in our own inability that we don't see the opportunities for freedom. So I pray right now in the name of Jesus that everyone listening right now, everyone engaging with this message would be able to feel a rinsing over our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you, God, would take us and give us a new hope, a new passion, a new drive, a new desire of all things that are good and healthy and fun and laughter-based and joyful and excellent, that all those things would fill us up so much that we don't even have room to crave anything else because you've given us more than enough. God, would you just rinse out the patterns that we've already established and allow us to have freedom? Your word says, and we sang it today, who the sun sets free will be free indeed. You are all about freedom and victory and overcoming, and we give you glory. Let each one of us have those hallmarks in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.